The real estate world is changing. Opportunity is everywhere. It has never been so easy to connect, share, and bring people together. We're learning from others and finding the very best in ourselves. Challenging our beliefs, overcoming our fears, transforming ourselves so we can transform our business. This is Investor Creator. All right. What is happening, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Tuesday Morning Coffee. I'm here with my main man, Tony Woodall. That's Tony, right. What's happening? Well, I've got on my working socks today. That's all I've got clean right now. When did you decide to work? Well, <laughs> I had to, you know, yesterday when we got through with here, I hit the road and drove two and a half hours to West Tennessee to Collinwood, where I've got one of mine right now. Okay. And worked last night till about midnight and then drove back this, uh, at midnight, got home about 2.30. So I've got on probably three week old socks. Who knows? I know I smelled something. That's not good. <laughs> That's not good at all. All right. Well, we'll put that on the agenda to get Tony some new socks. New socks. Week. Thank you. Yeah. Awesome. So uh, got a lot to cover today. This actually came from uh, basically by request. Uh-huh. Uh, we had a guy reach out uh, over Messenger, I think it was over the weekend, and basically said like, hey, here's some questions that I had. We're always happy to talk about requests. So if you ever have a request for the show, reach out to us at support at bradsmotherman.com. Uh-huh. Uh, also, if you're listening to this on podcast or on YouTube, then be sure and check us out on the Facebook group, the Investor Creator Community, because uh, there's a lot of bloopers that we have that we have to edit out. Sometimes we <laughs> say four-letter words like, uh, well, I guess I shouldn't say that. Yeah, let's well, hold off on it right now. Yeah, let's hold off on it right now. So be sure and check us out there. Uh, deal of the day, I want to talk about this deal. This is Misty Way. Uh, so, good old Misty Way. Misty Way. Tony was a part of this one. Um, basically, we bought this property. Was it pre-foreclosure when we bought it? Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's pre-foreclosure. Tired landlord, so two of the big five. We find guys that a majority of our transactions, vast majority of our transactions, come from one of five people. So we call them the big five motivators, yeah. inheritance, divorce, tired landlords, health and safety, and pre-foreclosure. And so this one was two of the big five. We've had three of the big five. We've never had, that I, that I know of, four or five of the big five in one, but we certainly had three. And so mm-hmm. this one was pre-foreclosure, tired landlord. So we bought this thing. We we closed on it. Had I, had we seen the interior? No, hadn't seen the interior. Never, and never saw it. the interior. Yeah, we bought it sub two, and I, I don't think we had really any walk away of any kind uh, to speak of, at least not much. So I don't remember if you went up first or if James went up first. No, I went up there four or five times first. Okay, so tell us about that. Well, I knock on the door. It's a nice, cute home in a neighborhood, you know, and just looked as normal from the front. And I knock on the door and, and this guy, maybe early to mid forties would come out. But when he would open the door, it was like Cheech and Chong's van opening up. I mean, it was just billows. Of, now, what does that mean exactly? Well, that would mean that there was a tremendous amount of weed being smoked in the house. <laughs> now, are you sure it wasn't just, uh, what do they call it? What is that other stuff? The fake weed? No, I had to pull over on the way home <laughs> just from the. Just from the afterglow. <laughs> Are you sure you didn't inhale? You know, I feel like we're talking to Bill Clinton here today. <laughs> now, Hillary told me that I didn't have to admit to this. <laughs> 
So the wheels are running off the show oh, just right off, right off at the beginning. So I said to him, I said, hey, buddy, um, I'm the fella that bought this house. And normally that's just the way we say it. It's easier than explaining. You yeah. know, I'm here representing the fella that bought this house. And he said, oh, cool. And I said, uh, now, did he have a hint of worry on his face? This guy hadn't paid month, uh, rent for months. This guy never... He never experienced a sense of sadness or sorrow or even guilt about the fact that he he had been living free for several months before we bought the house. Yeah. And uh, I said, hey, listen, I'm going to fix the house up and we're going to sell it. And uh, so I need you to think about when you could move out, you know. Yeah. I go in soft, kind of hoping that they'll follow that. And yeah. he did. He said, oh, man, when you want me to go? And I said, well, nice fella. about three weeks will be the end of the month, and that'll give you plenty of time. Why yeah. don't we just say if you get out, if you, if you go, if you're gone the end of the month, we'll just call it even. We won't try to collect on any of the past rent or anything. And he said, oh, man, that's, a, that's great. Thanks so much. So I went back up there three and a half weeks later, and, of course, everything was still there, and I knocked on the door. The doors opened up, and uh, old Cheech came out, and uh, – and, and said, dude, how are you? <laughs> Did he give you a hug? Or? It didn't give me a hug, but, but um, this went on. I went, um, I went three times, and I was not successful at yeah. all in any of my three. What attempts. was his excuse every time he just said, well? Man, we just got so much going on, and it's hard to find somewhere to rent around for here. For free. For, in, for free, for sure. In parentheses, for free. So then there was there were job changes within our organization. So I no longer was the guy who was sent up there. Yeah. So I didn't know James was going to knock on the door. And yeah. James came back and he said, hey, man. And the officer said, hey, man, I went to see your boy, Bud. And I said, oh, Misty Way. And he said, oh, yeah, I got him taken care of. I said, well, what would you say to him? I told him that we couldn't have this anymore and he was going to have to move out. And he was fine with it. And I said, well, how long did you give him? He said, a couple of weeks. He's going to be gone. I said, well, run on up there about three days after that and make sure, you know, the house is in good shape and everything. And he said, oh, I'll do it. He came back and he said, he didn't go nowhere. <laughs> James was so confident that he'd solved this problem and it just didn't happen that way. And so fast forward, COVID hit and there was a moratorium put on all evictions. Uh-huh. And then once the moratorium lifted this past summer, the, the court systems were really backed up. <laughs> And so I think our first court appearance was maybe September. And lo and behold, you know that fella, he got COVID right before his court date. Oh, no. He had a, a, a handwritten letter from a doctor that said that he had COVID and he could not appear to court. Oh, my. So we got reset for, I believe, December. And you know what happened that time, Tom? No, I don't. But I'm quite he, sure. That fella got COVID again. Again. He had another handwritten letter from a doctor. Oh, Dr. Benny Boom Botts. But this time, Houston Aiken, who's the attorney that handled this eviction, he said, look, Judge, this is the second time that this guy's had this. Uh, he's just stalling. Can we just get possession and reset for damage? And so the judge awarded us that. And so I think you from from then you have 30 days that and then you can uh, file. I can't remember what it is called where the police set to come out to, to take yeah. the stuff out of the house. And so that's what we had to do. I guess that was probably mid-February, something like that. Do we know how long, how long ago did we buy? It was right at two years. So this guy probably got about two and a half years of free rent. 
I tell you what, you got to give it up to him. Yeah. Well, I think honestly, we need to just have him here for an episode. I, I think so. I mean, that's a that's a fifteen hundred dollar month rent in that house, easy yeah. in Clarksville, and the old boy got between two and three years of free rent out of it. I mean, what did he what did he make in wages? Well, during I don't that know. time, fifteen hundred times twenty four thirty months. 15, four, 45 grand. Yeah. Something like that, which, which <laughs> oh, I didn't get that much, but I got a text from Houston. He said, order for damages granted should be entered later today or early tomorrow. I said, do we know the amount? I said $24,182, which includes attorney's fees and court costs. So $24,000 okay. is a judgment that we got. And so of course, who do I call? Big Polly. So uh, Paulie's going to be looking at where this guy works and we can garnish wage up to 25% of the check. And as soon, if, if we get that far with it, my guess is there's an 80% chance that he bankrupts and so right. the judgment just goes away. But at least we tried. I think we'll at least get a couple hundred dollars. I think I feel confident we'll get at least a couple hundred. Well, that'll cover James's gas. That'll cover y'all's gas money. I'm if I get just two hundred, I'm gonna split it between you and James, and y'all just go have cocktails because I'm gonna feel so upset about just getting two hundred dollars and twenty four thousand. I I just can't touch it. But um, so, what's the good news on Misty Way since then? So, I mean, here's the thing. Honestly, the guy did did me a, a real favor. Because uh, when we bought it, we figured ARV is probably 160000 I think we bought it somewhere around one hundred twenty-five. So it really wasn't a deep equity position. This is one we were probably going to own our finance. We bought subject to? Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So, I mean, we didn't have much cash in the deal. I mean, we were paying the payment each month. And that wasn't fun, but it wasn't like a lot of money. And so the good part is that this thing has since appreciated to what I thought was 240000 I thought. Yeah. And so um, last Friday, so what, four or five days ago, I was looking at what we have and and we were this close to listing it with uh, a property management company, just turning it into a rental. I thought, well, what's the equity there? I, want, I bet it's gone up quite a bit. You know, and I started looking, I said, good Lord, man, this thing's gone up. And so I had about a 90 second conversation with myself. I was like, well, we can have around $300 per month in cash flow from the rental, or I could retail exit and have like about 120,000 in cash yeah. come in, which is a pretty easy answer. Yeah. And so we listed it the same day that I made the decision Friday. It might've been Thursday. I made the decision Thursday. The same day it listed, we had our first showing Saturday morning. Amanda got the thing cleaned out, did a great job on it. And we just put you know new flooring and, and paint in already and it mm-hmm. looked good. And so we had 26 showings over the weekend. We had five offers. Our our highest offer was 255. So it got bid up. We actually accepted at 250, which is effectively a cash offer. And so uh, we were happy to to do that. And so it, the guy really did me a favor by tying the damn thing up for two years. Yeah. So it could appreciate. So yeah. you know. So even the appreciation outran what you weren't getting. Oh, certainly. The the note you were paying. Yeah. Certainly. But don't don't. Don't think that the big catch here, the the what what we did right on that one was just waiting for appreciation, right? Because what if the market had tanked during that time? We still would have been okay. We'd have been okay, but we wouldn't have done what we'd have done. The right. the real good thing is how you buy on the front end. Yeah. If you're not capturing your equity on the front end, you're just waiting for pie in the sky. Hopefully, yeah. on the back end. Yeah. Back there. And, and that's not investing. That's speculation. And there's a world of difference between the two. That's right. I mean, we're value investors. We buy based on value today, you know, at a at a discount. At a discount. So uh, we're not interested. 
and what could be in the future. And sometimes you'll have a seller like I can't remember. It was I think I think it was Jordan Parker in the group has a guy in Texas that has a 400 acre spread and a hunting cabin and said, well, this could be yeah. this great hunting destination. Well, we don't buy based on what it could be. We mm-hmm. buy based on what it is. Right. And so we uh, sell based on what it could yeah, be. Correct. Yeah, that, that's right. <laughs> that's right. So uh, the, the guy kind of took a page from the, the old positioning book. Uh-huh. I mean, like, just think all that really, the, the, uh, that 120,000 really was based on about a 30 minute conversation that took place two and a half years ago. Yeah. That initial conversation we came in when it was triage, perfect presentation. I mean, that's where the surprising stuff happens down the road when you get it nailed down then. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So so good things come to those who prepare yeah. uh, and sometimes wait. Uh-huh. So, but I'd, I'd much rather prepare well than have to wait. That's right. You know, because we don't have to wait for equity appreciation. Why do you wait for equity appreciation? Mm. You, you can just buy it today. Yes. You know, and, and that's why I don't get a lot of landlords that are like, well, I'm buying at market, but I'll have this equity appreciation across time. It's like, well, yeah. how about this? Like, if you like rentals, cool, but let's buy equity today. And maybe instead of buying all the, with these bank loans, we buy it sub two or right. 0% owner finance. Right. And then you can have uh, all the equity that you want. That's now. right. That, I mean, that is so right. It is when you capture your equity up front. Uh, anything else beyond that then just becomes icing. Yeah. Yeah. But you don't have to have the anything else when you buy right up front. Right. Right. No, the, it's it's a cherry on top of the cake. It's not the process of baking the cake. Right. You know, like we want to have a good process of creating what we want to create and not hope for what could be. And I'm not patient. So I guess it's just kind of my personality type. It's like, I want it now. Most people, I think, are probably that way. And I can't imagine a worse plan than buying at market now and in 30 years, hopefully, if I live that long, the house will be paid off and I'll have cash flow and then equity then. Mm-hmm. That sounds pretty terrible to me. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I'm, I'm just not patient. Well, that was a fun one. You know, <laughs> sometimes, um, sometimes the deal doesn't go as you expect. And I certainly wouldn't, when I started this, have wished for two years to get the the house back. Right. But given that that's what happened, it it worked out really well. Uh So like at the end of the day, we're happy with the outcome and uh, the buyer's going to have a a good home, you know, that, that was recently real nice uh, painted. So it doesn't smell like Cheech and Chong, Uh which I think is a good thing. (laughs) There'll be real happy folks that move in there. Yeah. (laughs) I'd say for probably the next 24 months, the afterglow will be real. They'll be real happy. (laughs) Most laid back people in the neighborhood. (laughs) I'm glad to hear that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's fantastic. All right, cool. So um, what we're, we're talking about today is scale, okay? And what is scale? When does scale happen? Does it happen like sooner than what we expect? And um, how do we begin to really build a company? And so this is like really perfect for us to talk about because you've been really hand in glove with everything that we've done here. And so you've seen everything go from me and you doing everything to us being specialists in a certain branch of the company. And so this is going to be fun. This is going to be fun. I'm yeah. looking forward to this. So l- let's talk about scale and scaling the business. The first thing that I want to submit to you is that scale is organic. Okay. So like as you go up the hierarchy of the flipping business, everybody starts up at the same place, which is as a startup. So we all start as a startup and you're excited about the business, but you don't know what you don't know. And when you begin to implement 
So you're trying to find deals, you're trying to get contracts, all of that. Then uh, you hit struggle. So the sad part is that most investors stay in struggle. I would say probably the 80-20 rule may be forgiving here that you know, certainly 20% of the investors do 80% of the deals. It, it might be that 5% of the investors do 80% of the deals in this case, but certainly 80% of investors stay in struggle. And if they stay at all, most people don't have, and this goes back to like what we talked about last time, like mindset, having the vision, mm-hmm. like what gets you through struggle is having the commitment and the mm-hmm. mindset and the vision to get you through it. Mm-hmm. But if you stay in struggle long enough, you'll get some feedback. So the positive feedback loop, mm-hmm. which is I'm trying something, it worked or didn't work, or how did it work? Let me pivot and change and shift. And then out, over time, you become successful. Mm-hmm. Okay. Once you become successful at a certain level, scale begins to happen, whether you want it to or not. And so the organic shift of going from a successful business to a scaling business happens unless you proactively try to pull the reins back. And so like what I tell people all the time is you either have a a marketing problem or a fulfillment problem. So the marketing problem is how do we find deals or how are we found when deals need to happen is probably a better way to put that. How are deals found? How do we negotiate these deals? How do we structure these deals? And so what a lot of people are doing is if you have one of those three elements, you can have success, okay? Like if you're a great marketer, you can have success. If you're a great negotiator, then you're going to have success. If you're just a great deal structure person, then you can have success. But whenever you put all three, it becomes like an exponential factor. So the growth is not linear, it's exponential. And so once you have all three, you're going to have to make a decision because your marketing problem is fixed and you're going to have a fulfillment problem, which means you have more houses than you can actively manage. Uh And so I I specifically talked to Will Cannon about this like two or three weeks ago and told him like, stop buying houses. Like you have enough houses until you have a team, you're going to buy yourself into a problem. Uh And I've certainly done that before. We did. Yeah. So it's like you have 30, 40-ish houses sitting on the ground and you're trying to manage them with two people. Each deal by itself makes sense to do, but you're just creating a problem. And so at some point, once these problems, those three problems are fixed on the marketing side, you're going to have a fulfillment problem. And so you have to pull the reins back on the business or you have to begin to scale. Okay. And so the beginnings of, of scale is an organic process. It's going to happen unless you effectively try to keep it from happening. And I would say that it happened for us in Athens, Alabama. Okay. So we were running radio ads and we were buying in in different parts of of Middle Tennessee. Mm -hmm. And we had a lady, and I think you did this triage call with the lady. She was driving through. Yeah. Trucker, right? Yeah. And she was driving through Nashville. Yep. I heard a radio ad. Right. And the interesting that it, it happened out of state for the first time, really, but it still came from from here. We were so locked down. Yeah. Yeah. And so we were really trying not to do deals outside of a certain area. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people really, um, on the front end of the business, it's, it's an overwhelming sort of thing for them to think about, oh, going national out of the gate or doing the virtual model or buying a house that I'm not going to see right. can be a little bit overwhelming. But basically the lady said that, that God told her we were going to buy the house. Yeah. And I I guess if the big man upstairs said that, that he obviously was not lying because we did. We did. We did buy the house. 
<laughs> and so she gave us 0% on our finance at a significantly reduced rate and really didn't care about a down payment either. And so we really ran out of reasons to not buy the house. Right. And so we skipped that imaginary line that was the Tennessee-Alabama border mm-hmm. and realized like, well, it's not that difficult. Like the fundamentals remain the same across markets. Yeah. And so that's when I would say that we really began to scale the business because I was no longer scared of doing deals that were outside. Yeah. And we could get to that house faster than we could get to Knoxville Yeah, or Memphis or yeah. Jackson, you know, because it was just an hour and a half south of us. Yeah. It just happened to cross the state line. Yeah. But for some reason, I, I was really scared of that state line. Yeah. You know, and there's some reason for that. I mean, state laws do change across state lines, but the fundamentals don't. Mm-hmm. Like if you're buying equity, you're buying terms. It doesn't really matter where the, the deal is. Like we can, we can make it work. So, yeah. And, and during that time too, you, you know, you do have to duplicate some other things. Like, does that mean I need a title company in the state of Alabama? Uh, does, does, is there anything that ex- we existing do that we can do there and not have to create something new? I mean, right. it's all kinds of internal questions like that. Yeah. But that was the beginning of scaling from the standpoint of actually the work that we do. Right. The widgets we're building. Right. Whatever that widget is, you know, that was the beginning of taking us outside there. But it also, it also like the water broke. And at that point, we weren't afraid to go outside of the state at all. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that wasn't a huge deal. No. But it really was a huge deal yeah. in what it did. Yeah. And I would say it was one of the, the best five deals I've ever done because of that reason. Uh-huh. My, my first, my best deal is still my first deal, not for the financial part of it. Although yeah. as a percentage of net worth, <laughs> I went from like no net worth to a little bit of net worth. And that was a big thing for me. Mm-hmm. But what it gave me is the confidence to say like, well, this does work and maybe I can do this. Mm-hmm. And so that was far more important than whatever we made on the deal. Mm-hmm. But uh, I would say this deal in Athens, Alabama is probably a top three deal because it once again shifted my mindset. Yeah. You know, and it was proof positive that something can happen that I was very afraid of happening, but it, it was all okay. Uh-huh. And not only was it okay, it actually worked out pretty darn well. Uh-huh. So that was good for On me. another show, I'm going to be interested to hear what your your top five deals are. Okay. Yeah. M- maybe next week. Yeah. I'll have to think about that because... Uh-huh. Because they're not, like you say, it's not just about the amount of equity. You know, some equity like fix and flick deals, the equity is fixed. Once you close the sale of it, you, you, all, you have all the equity you're ever going to have in that deal. Now you can take that, you can take that $72,000 check you just had and you can create from that one deal all kinds of new deals. Yes, correct. So it's, it's not the end end, but it's also not like, um, where we bought with terms and we sold with terms. And then you just hand those numbers to David and, and get him a whiteboard and he goes nuts. And the next thing you know, you have no idea there was that much cash hiding in that deal. Oh, yeah. It's just like the gold mine that keeps on producing gold, yeah. you know. So, like, don't kill the golden goose. <sighs> so, scale is organic. This, the second thing I want to talk about is that scale begins to happen sooner than you think, okay? We've talked about John Floyd a couple of times on this uh, on this podcast. And so, one of the things that he told me Back during the crash, he said, Brad, name me 10 home builders that have built 10 homes a year for 10 years in this county. And I couldn't do it. And I mean, I was surprised. You know, I could name 
10 that had done it in the past three or four, but I couldn't do it for, you know, 10 in the past 10. And I've thought about the same thing from what we do, from the perspective of what what we do, if it's a one-man show or one-woman show. And so if you're a solopreneur and you're doing one deal per month, I don't know anybody that I can think of that has done one deal a month by themselves for 10 years. So you have to ask why. Now, we've had a lot of people like Tom Herbstritt, you know, has done those kinds of numbers, but he brought his family in. He created help, right? you know, which is the beginning of beginnings of scaling labor. And so I don't know, I can't name people that have done that. Okay. Because what inevitably happens is they scale up and add people or they scale down and crash because you can't do everything. And, uh, and I'm not talking about wholesaling. Like you're not taking a house to market. You're taking some paper to market. Like if we're talking about real estate, uh, I don't know a single person that has done one deal a, a month. month for ten years. Yeah, I mean now you now you've got me thinking about my next ten years. Yeah. So then it comes down to well, if the goal is to grow, then right around that one deal a month mark, then you have to understand that it's time to put systems in place and infrastructure in uh-huh. place before it's needed. Because if it if it becomes to be a stress point, then it's it's too late. Mm-hmm. It's already inhibiting growth. There's mm-hmm. a governor that happens on on the entire company. Mm-hmm. Okay, whether you're the company or not is irrelevant. Mm-hmm. And I've talked about this a lot. It's like death by a thousand paper cuts. Like I'm not a detailed person. Well, if you're doing a deal a month, let's say your your inventory's four at a time. Well, you're managing subs on probably a couple of those. So say there's two going retail, two owner finance. You're managing subs on some. You're putting insurance on all. This time of year, you're having to get the grass mowed. Uh-huh. The guy mows the grass. He, uh-huh. he, as soon as the last blade of grass is cut, he's calling 10 times in a row asking for a, a check, check. Yeah. without sending any, any pictures. And so like those kinds of detail stuff like shut me down. I mean, they do. I mean, it's. Uh, I was just thinking then about the way that you use the word governor. If we don't have a pre-designed governor that is managing our ship, the plan, the it one will show up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the overwhelming part, the I've got, I, I'm not prepared, I'm not planned, uh, I, I have not pre-scaled, and a governor will show up and it'll shut you down, and it, and it's not going to be pretty then. I mean, it's not going to be a planned thing, and finances will be chaotic at that point. So a pre-planned governor that you're in control of is a much better plan than the governor that shows up with chaos. 100%. And so the driver in all of this is is marketing. Okay, like we're effectively a marketing business with a real estate arm. It's not about the house. It's not about the property. It's about the person that has a problem. And so if we're sourcing that person and they're coming to us and they have a problem and identifies a problem with real estate, then that's the person that we're looking for. Okay. Uh, we have to be found when that person is searching. And so to talk about feast famine cycles, here's what I see some people do to navigate this colossal error, like huge error is they begin to become overwhelmed with the details or the part of the business that becomes difficult for them. And they begin to pull the ads back. Okay. So they go from marketing at X and then they shut it down completely. And all that does is create feast famine cycles in the business. Mm-hmm. I would much rather someone run ads of say a thousand per month consistently 
then go 5,000 per month, 5,000 per month, shut it down because they bought too much. And I've seen this happen before and I've, I've like called it where I'm like, okay, like somebody, like an apprentice specifically, I remember this, an apprentice booked a call with me and said, had done well, done really well, had a little bit of infrastructure, but not enough to say, hey, I'm going to increase the ads to 10K a month. And I said, well, that's cool, but here's what I, I see is going to happen. You know, the end of that month, that person had bought, I think, 450000 in equity. <laughs> and so, uh, and was like, I'm out of cash. And because uh, he was running a lot of his own cash at the time, mm-hmm. as, as opposed to having backers that like he couldn't run them out of money. Right. And so he had to shut the ads down and then like catch up for 90 to 120 days. I did this when we entered Pittsburgh because me and Jerry, uh-huh. the cost per contract was so cheap. I went in with a, an ad budget that I thought would be successful, but not as successful as it was. And uh, we bought so many in one month that I had to turn the ads off for 90, 90 <laughs> days because it was like, how do you eat, eat an elephant one bite at a time? Yeah. It was kind of the same thing. So if you driver, the ads, the good marketing is the driver of scale. And so if you see the need to pull your ads back, that's the wrong answer. You know, maybe you pull them back to a consistent level until you can build infrastructure so you can begin to scale it up again. But it's the worst thing you can do to pull marketing back because you're redlining. You're much better off keeping the marketing the way it is that's working, obviously, mm-hmm. and cherry picking your deals. Mm. So maybe the next month you could you could buy four if you chose to. You just buy one or maybe two. Mm. And those are the best, two cleanest, easiest, profitable deals and then that way you're you're not adding like additional red line. Does that make sense at all? Yeah. Yeah, it is. And I'm just sitting here thinking right here, it'll be good one day one of these that you talk about here are the areas in a business that I suggest you begin scaling with. And like from this from number 1 to then whatever the second most important is and yeah. then possibly 3 and 4 out there. Because there are it, it, there are certain needs that hit first, mm-hmm. and when you are a, like if we've got some friends out there who are apprentices who are very systematic and very um, everything has to line up in a row, and there's a certain amount of chaos that's created when marketing leads, mm-hmm. not marketing leads, but when it's the lead horse, when right. marketing is the lead horse, there's a certain amount of chaos that's created, yeah, and and your team has to be ready for that. And you have to be ready for that. Yeah. I mean, that is, that's what you start. Uh, that's what you start trying to, to get in cages. You know, you start trying to get this stuff together, at, but, but it is chaos really in the beginning with that marketing. And all of a sudden you've got all this, you got all this equity on the table. Yeah. And um, so it'd be interesting to hear you talk about what you think, are the first, second, third areas of scaling in your business. And I don't know if that's what, if you'd thought about that for today, but that's definitely. Well, to a certain extent. And and here's the thing, like as much as I would love to create a mind map of if this, then that, the the thing is that it's going to be different for everyone. Mm -hmm. And that's why a lot of what we do in the apprenticeship is hundred percent custom because like when we on-ramp with someone, we see like what their goals are, what the resources are, how much time they have, uh, what's their energy level like so that we can come up with a plan? And it's really the same thing as someone begins to scale because everybody has different streaks and weaknesses. Now, generally, the, the issue here is not finances. 
because they have a successful business, you know, but the successful business is beginning to scale. And so let's talk about hires. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you can scale labor or you can scale systems. Okay. Generally, you're going to scale both, right? I personally don't believe in the VA model. Now, we do have VAs that are supporting roles here, but they're not primary roles. They're, they're supporting roles. So if I need a, a document designed or something like that or some skip tracing done, th then that's something that a VA can do, and, and that's fine. But I don't believe in your acquisition person being in the Philippines. And here's the thing. It's like, what? it's risk versus reward. Well, what's the risk? Well, you're, you're going to have to pay additional labor to have good talent in the U.S. Well, what's the real risk? Well, that's the risk that you know. The risk you don't know is that the person in the Philippines is probably going to cost you three, four, five deals a year, okay? Because English is not the primary language or because the time zone difference or, you know, there's no way to really control what they're doing because you're not there with them. And so the real cost is not what you're paying them. It's what they are losing for you, mm. okay? So I believe in scaling labor that is local. Okay. And so I feel like your first hire, and this is for everyone, I think the first hire is someone that's talented at, at everything. Okay. So like Tony could not have been a, a better right-hand person for me because he's talented at everything and he's humble enough that he would do anything. Like he was, you, you were totally cool to like, oh, let me go turn on some utilities today. <laughs> Even though that was definitely below your pay grade. It's also like one of those things, hey, we've got to get it done. And so like we jumped in, we started to scale and like we were running subs together. We're doing whatever we had to do to, to get things done. And so the first person that you need is someone that's talented at everything and willing to do what it takes to get the job done. They're highly conscientious. They have high energy. They're high in morality because you're going to have someone there that because you're not in a position yet to have segregation of duties that they can take advantage if they chose to. Okay. Like it has to be a highly trusted position. The second person that I think we have come in is a high detail person. Okay. The primary person and the secondary person, they're going to create a lot of chaos. You need the third person to come in that is high detail, that has mm. an understanding of systems that can begin to hire additional team members as he or she sees fit and has the ability to, to manage in a way that generally your your lead, uh, both you and your lead person are not going to be able to do, okay? And I think that this is like just exactly what happened with us. You know, uh -huh. Until we had that third person come in that was like, okay, like when, when Casey came on, there would be many times I'd come to the office, I was like, who in the hell is this? Well, I just hired this person. <laughs> I know it was kind of funny because I, was I wasn't used to having someone else make major decisions. Yeah. And so Casey would say, well, I think I'm going to hire somebody to do this. And I was like, all right. Okay. Go get them. Yeah. yeah Tony's, Tony was servicing notes. He was the, the secretary, receptionist, lead manager, rehab manager. You know? I'm telling you, though, when Casey came in, though, she's such a systems person. She sat down and we'd go through every, we'd go through these days and then a question would come up and she'd go, well, how do we pay those underlying mortgages? And I'd pull, I'd, I'd go into my box, my cardboard box, you know, and pull out this little black book. And I'd say, oh, they're right here. And I had drawn the lines with ink, you know, 
And I mean, I had nothing in computer and I would check it off every month when I would. Yeah. And I said, well, here's where they are right here. And she goes, oh. The accountant from 1910 Boston would be very impressed. <laughs> she said, this is really? She was waiting for me to tell her the punchline. And she goes, oh, this is really how you're keeping up with it? And I go, yeah. She go, oh, well, can I make a copy of that? And then by the next day, she'd come in and hand, give me a handout. Yeah. And this is, this is it's, in a, it's in a computer now. Oh, okay. Yeah. And uh, she did that with everything. And until she would get to a place to where it was filling up in her spot and she'd go, okay, what is the biggest need now? And that's where she'd hire then. Yeah. And th through this whole process, I was like being drug kicking and screaming. Yeah. Because I was like, what are you talking about? We don't need this person. Me and Tony have handled this for years without <laughs> this person, you know, and she could not have been more right. Which brings me to my next point of scale is that almost everyone that you hire at the very beginnings of scale, they pay for themselves. It's true. Okay. So like your acquisition person that's paid X amount per year, if they create two more deals for you that year that you couldn't get to because you're doing other stuff that was a lower value task, mm -hmm. then they paid for themselves plus some. Yeah. They create the cash that pays themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, your, your controller that's looking at every invoice and is looking at every HUD, like they're going to catch enough in, in mistakes. <laughs> like we had a, a $9,000 discrepancy on a payoff recently. Well, you had a $17,000 check that wasn't even sent to us. Yeah, we had a $17,000 Still sitting check. At, a, at a title company out there somewhere. Yeah, yeah. So, And we, we didn't know anything about it, but Abby found it. Yeah, she found it. And we never would have gotten that money. Never <laughs> would have gotten that money uh, had she not been you know, basically auditing old HUDs. Now we get all those escrow checks in that we used to never know whether we got, one, got it or not. Yeah. I mean, it's just so many places now where everything that was falling out of our pockets as we were driving down the street yeah. have now been picked up. And they're not falling anymore. Yeah, yeah, both metaphorically and non-metaphorically yeah. speaking. <laughs> so like the, the rehab manager, Amanda, she's making our interest costs so much less because things are getting done quicker. Yeah. You know, it's so like that. that's a big benefit there. And so... Um, and most, you, you know, when we buy... I mean, the whole idea of how we do our work is you're capturing not equity one time when you get it under contract. You you capture equity in everything you do, how quickly you get the rehab right. finished, what you spend on that, uh, what you create in profit. Even in the in the systems, in the uh, creative financing stuff, you can capture equity in so many different places yes. there. But if you don't have that good system, you lo start losing all that equity along the way. Right. Right. And, yeah. and your scaling is, is allowing us to capture all that back. It's really good. Yeah. Yeah. And so don't be afraid of these people coming into the business. Guys, being too cost focused is a growth killer. Like you can't say on one hand, I want to make a million dollars a year. And on the other hand, I want my business expenses to be approximately $600 a month. Like that, that doesn't reconcile. And so like if you want big numbers on one side, you're going to have some costs. But it's about value. It's not about cost. Like, I'm okay with cost if it drives value. I, I really hate costs that don't, like, don't create. Doesn't create, yeah. Yeah, that doesn't create value. So keep those in mind, guys. If you're, if you're super focused on cost, you, you're going to have a tough time growing. The last thing I want to talk about is creating culture. So, like, as you begin to hire people, you can have people that are the right fit on paper, 
but aren't a cultural fit. And so as you look at people to join with you, it's really important that you have a, a group of people that you enjoy working with and that culturally can, I was about to say, deal with you. And I think that that's just me because apparently I'm, I'm kind of difficult sometimes. Can you believe that, Tom? I don't know where people are getting this from. I mean, I know it's, it's just a rumor that goes around. You know how those are. <laughs> but um, like your culture has to be the lens that you view all hires. Well, and, and in, our, in our system, you are the governor. It's not a matter of, of power. It's a matter of where, which direction we're going to drive in, how fast we're going to drive, what, what automobile are we going to use to get there. Yeah. I mean, you are, you are the governor. You decide from the, from the very get-go, this is how much I'm going to spend on marketing, which is really where everything starts. It has no, I mean, whatever you put in the front ends, you're going to, is going to determine what you get out the back end. And so it, it is... It is. You, you, you cannot be so cost-driven on the front end and expect. Well, it's like the other day a guy said to me, when I say sometimes, you know, some of our seven-figure earners, they'll, they'll do $10,000 a month. Oh, my God, $120. All they heard All they was $120,000 a year in marketing. I said, did you hear me say they're seven-figure earners? Yeah. If I told you that we could swap checks right now and and you could hand me one for $120,000, i would hand you one for $1.3 million. Would you do the exchange? Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, that's all it is. Uh, that is such a good litmus test. Like, if you hear the, the sentence, like, one of our seven-figure earners spends $10,000 on ads per month, and all you heard was $10,000 per month <laughs> on ads, then you can check your mindset right there. Yeah. That you don't have a belief system that supports you making a million dollars a year. Which just right then, in order to get through that, you have to spend more money on marketing. Yeah. You have to face that fear. You have to create a showdown right there with the fear that exists in you at that point and do the thing that's going to scare the crap out of you. But it's the only way you're going to get through it. So my, my old jujitsu professor, Cliff, he would, I remember one time specifically after practice, we were all sitting there just beat up, you know, and he said, you know, I've got a situation for you. And he, he goes through the self-defense scenario and he says, what do you do? And so people are, are raising their hand and giving answers on what you do, all of them from the defensive posture. And he said, I never said that you were the person that had to defend. Uh-huh. And so the way, and I, I, maybe I can find it. I really need to, because it was very ambiguous as to who you were. And then you're asked this question. You know, and so everybody that said how they would have defended, you can tell that they have a defensive posture. Mm-hmm. You know, like I'm not going to say necessarily that it's a victim mindset, but possibly because they put themselves in the scenario of being mm-hmm. the person that's being attacked. And I always thought like that was really, really interesting. But you kind of did the same thing with your, you know, this person's doing this and spending this. Mm-hmm. And if someone identifies specifically like, oh my gosh, I can't believe somebody would spend that. Yeah then they're putting themselves into that cost mindset. Yeah, and, and the first question I'm always asked when I'm talking to folks who are interested in our program is, how much do you think I'll have to spend mm-hmm. on, on marketing? And my answer usually is, well, how much would you like to make? Yeah. I mean, this is really not about... It's a cor- it's a one-for-one correlation, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You know, now, if I'm just kidding, if they're just getting started and they're taking big chances, some of them are already 
not letting that hold them back. You know, they're already decided they're going to they're going to spend more getting in this program and in marketing than they've got right now. They don't know where it's going to come from yet. But by God, they're not going to be held back. Anymore. <laughs> right. You know, and I'm not I'm, I'm not talking to them. Right. Right. It, I mean, it is usually folks who have who've got a little bit more and are afraid of losing. it. Yeah, I, I don't understand that. But and we've talked about that enough. Like if I'm not exactly who I view someone as successful then mm-hmm. I'm a failure anyway, you know? So. Yeah. I don't know if we have time, but it was one more thing about culture yeah, that I want to say, you know, culture is developed on the front end by the people you hire. Yeah. But then it's developed over time by the way that those people that you hired have to give each other some time in a system together. Yeah. Because we're not just robots. We walk across the threshold of a front door of, a, of an office And we all drag in there with us the fact that we just dropped four kids off at school or we've got a a elderly parent who's not well or we've got financial stuff going on, you know. I mean, we all come in here that same way. So you have to have an environment where people can be who they are. Yes. And um, an environment where that's encouraged. Yes. And I think that the world has gotten better at that. Like. I remember Dan Pena used to talk about how when he ran a, a, a sales floor that he taped the phone to the people's hands. So if they wanted to go to the restroom, they would have to unplug the phone and take the phone with them. I think that's a little bit much, <laughs> you know, but like culture starts top down, you yeah. know? And so I think that that's exactly what you're saying. So, I mean, me and Tony, we wear jeans. Most of the people here wear jeans. You know, we're pretty laid back. Most of the people here are laid back. But you have to make sure that as you begin to scale, guys, you cannot have C-level players. We have A people. We have B people. We don't have C people. Mm. You're too small to have C-level players because they're like a a disease that will infect everything around them. Mm. You know, like you cannot have C-level players. And so uh, we had a C-level player. We had to let her go. And and I I should have done it much sooner. You know, like it it was C-level. I'm being extremely forgiving. Like th- this girl could mess up a cup of coffee. So, and we do not ask girls to bring anybody coffee. <laughs> but, no, we get our own damn, we coffee. get our own damn coffee. But, uh, this girl, if she was bringing it from one room to the other, yes. she would mess it up. Yeah, it was so, tough. and she was with us for far, far too long. And, and finally, and we gave her severance. And as soon as she got her last severance check, she unfriended us on Facebook. Which I'm like, like, I don't care. I think it's funny, but it's like, uh, guys, you you can't have C-level players. And one of the things I really appreciated in that process was that you guys who were leaders who hired her to start with took your responsibility for putting her in a role she couldn't, she just couldn't do. It grew on her. Actually, in the beginning, she probably could. Yeah. But the company grew. Yeah. And then it was bigger than what she could do. Correct. So... You guys handled it very respectfully. There was nothing else you could do. I mean, the Facebook stuff, you know, that's kind of the level of the playing field at the time. I I needed less friends on Facebook anyway. (laughs) I need less friends total. So it's okay. You know, I I need less friends and more haters. Yeah. And so I I guess the thing I didn't say to finish that point up was about the the longevity of time in developing culture is you're not going to bring five new people in there. And for about three weeks, things are going to go great. But then all of a sudden, it's going to start to get edgy. Mm -hmm. People will not be in their first week of work anymore. 
and somebody's going to snap at somebody else. Somebody's yeah. going to be pissy. Somebody is going to call somebody out for whatever it is. And so then you're going to go through some seasons. So it takes some time. And we have that. But yeah, we have had it. And uh, I mean, in big meetings where across the table, we've had some not so good conversations, but they are really good conversations. Yeah. Because until you learn to work together in a in some reality, you really don't have much at the time. The first three weeks don't do anything for you. Yeah. Anybody can be nice for three weeks. Yeah. But I remember specifically we had one team meeting and I was like, guys, I don't know what's going on. Seem like there's some tension going on. I just feel it. You know, like if there's a concern, let's talk about it. Come to me ind- individually. We'll set a group down, whatever we have to do. And um, everything worked itself out. But And here's a, a, my last recommendation for today is uh, have Margarita Fridays. Mm. We, we, we have Margarita Fridays here. So oddly enough, started to be at a, a Mexican restaurant called Margarita's and they got a really, really bad food review, which apparently is very tough to do because the first time the inspector comes in, they give them a chance to correct it before they come back. Oh my. And it still wasn't good. And so Grace, who's transaction coordinator here, she runs a food blog. So she's always like checking all this food stuff out and it was not good. So we're not having Margarita Friday at Margarita's anymore. Oh. Maybe we should just change it to like Manhattan Mondays or... Could be. But we have right down the street, Carmen's Taquiera. I don't true. know how you say Taquiera. <laughs> Taqueria. Taqueria. <laughs> I don't know, but it's Carmen's. Just Carmen's. And they got a great front porch. Yeah. All right. That'll work. That'll work. Any final thoughts for you, Tone? Nah. It was a good show. Yeah, it was fun. Good conversation. Always good. Always good. Well, guys, we'll call it a day. If you need anything, reach out, support at bradsmoman.com. If not, we'll see you next Tuesday, Tuesday morning coffee.